Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Modern CFO Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Seski. Today, I'm joined by Z Lee, CFO of Customer IO. Z, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. So I'd love to talk about your career progression, the route to the CFO role, uh, your first time as a CFO in earlier companies. But before we do so, I'd love to hear a little bit of background uh, as to what you were interested in, even in undergrad and some of the first roles that you had, you know, right out of Penn. Yeah, yeah. So maybe just a little bit of myself, and then we can probably launch into different topics that would go in there. But so I was born in China and then grew up in the Bay Area and then uh, went to Penn. You and I just chat about like Philly, which is the city that I, uh, I really love. But after Penn, I actually started my career in Canada. So I was in finance at a uh, wireless division of a large telco called uh, Bell Canada. Uh, and then after that, I moved back to the U.S. So I worked in investment banking in New York in the tech group of Credit Suisse. So if you follow banking, you know, Credit Suisse might be called UBS or First Boston later on or something like that. So, so that's the, some of the <laughs> uh, new dynamic there. But I, I learned a lot during that time in banking, worked a lot as well. But, you know, on many tech M&A and IPO financing deals there. And then also get to interact with a ton of smart, hardworking, talented people. And then after that, I actually moved to Seattle, cold Turkey. And the backstory to that was my wife and I were both actually in grad school in LA. When I took the job to move to New York, I made a deal with her and say, hey, you know, uh, we need to transfer your, your grad school. She's got two more years. You know, when, whenever you are ready to leave, I'll hold up my end of the bargain. So no questions asked when you're ready to leave New York, then I'll go. So the time came, this is probably like seven years ago. Um, she says she wants to move to Seattle closer to her family. And then I uh, picked up and go. I did not know anybody in Seattle going in, uh, but, but Seattle, I now like it's home for me. So I love it. It's, uh, it reminds me of uh, maybe the, the Bay Area when, when I was, um, you know, many, many years ago, uh, you know, back in high school when I kind of grew up in the Bay Area. So, but yeah, so now, now I'm in Seattle. I focus on helping uh, fast-growing SaaS companies, uh, helping them scale. So, uh, you know, the uh, uh, one of the company was SkyTab, which is a, a Seattle-based enterprise SaaS company. Uh, and we did a number of transactions, including a, a Series E round led by Goldman Sachs. Uh, and then after that, um, I was with uh, MetBridge. So it was a PE, growth PE back company. And we, we sold the company from one growth PE to another growth PE. And, and now I'm at customer.io. So very happy at the momentum and everything that we have here at the company. So uh, just really, I think, very fortunate to be part of this growing story with customer.io. Yeah, so that's generally the, the work background. Uh, outside of work, I also you know, spend time doing the uh, alumni interview for the Penn undergrad admission, uh, which I always find super uh, refreshing to see the, the fresh applicants every year. And uh, I've always been amazed with the, the quality of the applicants. And then also I'm on the board of uh, an organization called LCYC, uh, Legal Council for Youth and Children. So uh, we're focused on advancing the rights of uh, our, our youth and children, so. That's a pretty incredible resume. I wanna, we're gonna, we're gonna pick it all apart, but let's start right at your last and current role right now, uh, customer IO. And I'm curious to know, first, what attracted you to the firm, uh, the leadership, uh, maybe some of the cultural ways that the firm's been building out over the last decade, and uh, also maybe the value add of working uh, together. I know there are a million SaaS solutions out on the marketplace today, 
the venture world has been in flux over the last few years. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about the firm, uh, how you're delivering value to clients and what got you most excited. And you've been there for about two years now. So you know, maybe yeah. bring us back you know, two-ish years. Yeah, yeah. So just a little bit about Customer.io. So we, uh, we're we a leading multi-product customer engagement platform. Uh, I think today it's it's actually a super exciting day because we, um, we have our, our new launch of uh, customer data pipeline that we launched today for early access. So, you know, throughout the last 10 years or so, our core product has been the customer engagement platform where we allow tech savvy marketers to engage with their customers through uh, emails, uh, SMS, and push notifications and also in-app messaging. And now we also allow a new product called the data pipeline. So we can uh, leverage first party data to create more unified view for uh, our customer records. So super exciting. And I think what really attracted me with my background, I've, I've looked at a ton of software SaaS companies and looking at like their value uh, and their potential. I was really attracted to number one, uh, it's, it's founder-led. So Colin, our CEO, has been there from day one. He's got this really long-term vision. And I really kind of feel aligned with that vision. And also we are very horizontal in terms of like our approach to our customers. So we want to partner with early tech companies. So if you're like a VC back um, early company, we want to be partnered with you early on and grow with you. And then just try to be, you know, as you kind of uh, advance and mature as a company, we will be part of that. And so throughout that journey, we were able to uh, provide a lot of value to, for you to engage with your customer. The company is also fully remote, which I find mm. super refreshing as well. When I joined, it was just right around the COVID time. So people are like definitely warming up to that remote uh, idea, but the company has been remote for a really long time. So the DNA really shows like in terms of the, the efficiency and, and how people interact async across the globe. So, so that's been a really great experience for me. And like I said, just uh, I'm very excited about the future where we continue to roll out a more rich experience for our customers through new products and new solutions. That's really exciting. I appreciate that. I'm sure the audience will appreciate it as well and be able to check out the solutions themselves. Uh, I'm, I want to go back to early career and discuss some of your original curiosity across all of the different types of deals that you were seeing. One of the things that's really apparent at this point after I've done so many of these interviews with CFOs tend to be just fearlessly curious, whether it is in learning something new really being entirely detail focused as they're reading financial statements and looking for opportunities to improve constantly. And it tends to then uh, iterate in, you know, big four audit where you've got a ton of different companies to go through or consulting or sometimes even other types of leadership positions. So I'm curious where that initial curiosity came from and if that has augmented your career path, uh, whether it's at Credit Suisse or elsewhere. Yeah, and I think it's it's funny because I I think back earlier on I I didn't really have a full vision of like oh I want to be this way so we I try to figure it out but consistently it's always been around like the the finance field so you know at the beginning you know I was in a just corporate finance role in a, a wireless division but which at the time we're talking about like early two thousands. You know, we were kind of like going through this phase from landline telecom to wireless, like cell phones, that kind of phase. So there's a lot of growth in that area. And I was working from the company side, but 
I don't know if you recall, like there, there's a big LBO kind of trend there, uh, leverage buyout trend back in the early 2000s. Um, so the, the Bell Canada was part of a deal uh, for one of the largest um, you know, LBOs at the time, which eventually actually didn't go through. But at the time, it would have been the, the largest deal in Canada at the time. So I was able to get involved on that deal from a company side, which really kind of uh, opens my eyes and curiosity on like, oh, you know, on the other side of the table, you know, th- these are things that are happening. So super interesting. So I kind of use that to craft my way out back to US, took my MBA, and then I went into banking. And that kind of helped me continue that path to look at in the, in the tech space. I was part of the uh, you know tech and telecom group. So being able to work on a lot of fast growing companies with cutting uh, you know advanced technology with, with some new trends looking at there. So during that time, able to work on a number of M&A deals, IPOs and debt uh, financing deals. So that really helps me open my eyes and being able to kind of uh, be comfortable interacting with C-level clients, as well as, uh, you know, collaborating with law firms, right? The, the, the teams from the law firms and also accounting teams, to your point, like the big force on different transactions. So being able to kind of like drive the process forward, giving me that skill set was uh, super valuable. And then at that time, I was really, even up until that time, wasn't really thinking about a CFO path eventually. But, you know, when I moved to Seattle, that was a kind of a moment of, okay, I need to figure out how do I reposition myself? Because there are some banking presence in Seattle, but it's not a, you know, it's, it's not a banking presence in, in comparison to like uh, New York or San Francisco. So I decided to leverage my background and skill set to, you know, go into fast growing like startup companies. Uh, Seattle happens to be a very kind of uh, cloud-based software company hub for a lot of like interesting and exciting companies. So I was able to get connected with some of the local VCs that uh, get me connected with uh, SkyTag, which is one of the companies that uh, were preparing to, to do a round of fundraising. And they had um, uh, aspiration to go IPO in a, in a relatively short time frame at the time. Yeah, so that's kind of how I went from banking into startups and then through there, um, you know, uh, going into uh, CFO and, and doing different transactions, whether it's fundraising with the VCs or M&A um, or, or other things that we, we've been doing with the uh, customer iOS as well. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear that you've been on both sides of the table. I think that it probably informs a lot of decisions, uh, you know, whether you're communicating across boards or to investors, um, especially with, uh, you know, expectation management and timelines. But one of the things I'm curious is to uh, learn a little bit about uh, share and share with other CFOs is some of the playbooks that you saw that worked really well, uh, either at Credit Suisse or things that other CFOs can do or communicate with founders in today's environment that you saw that were successful in, in the past. Yeah, yeah. I think when it comes to interaction with the board, ultimately it depends on the company and also the composition of the board. But yeah, I, I like to try to make sure that I'm, I'm always proactive uh, in terms of the communication uh, and, and be very transparent with them, uh, laying out the potential you know, upside or downside and be pretty conservative about the, uh, the recommendation and the assessment. And then one thing that's always helpful is to have always be prepared with a the downside case or uh, be, par- be prepared with like a plan B because that always comes up and trip up people. But if you actually had those things think through 
before the meeting or communication with the board, or even uh, you know with with other uh, investment communities uh, or other uh, partners that you work with, it helps the your credibility and also kind of reinforces the confidence there. Uh, and I think that's part of that habit was built from my banking days when <laughs> we would do these you know management case upside downside. So there's there's always the thinking of like how can I get things wrong? Like how wrong will I be? And how what is the impact if I get it really wrong? So that's always been kind of my, my mindset in, in my thinking. Interesting. That's great. I really appreciate when people share frameworks to operate in. I think that's really valuable for uh, the mix of different types of finance leaders. I'd love to hear what you've learned recently uh, in your new position. I just think about how CFOs of scaling businesses, that's probably relevant to a lot of people who you typically have as clients, you know, scaling uh, venture-backed firms. The CFO role typically is, you know, you've got the financial acumen, but you also need a ton of EQ and leadership ability because you typically are wearing more than just one hat at, at any startup. So I'm curious as to how you think about uh, leadership and the mix of IQ, EQ needed to be transparent, communicative. You know, sometimes it's an addition to the culture of the firm, especially as uh, you hire a finance team. Uh, so I'm curious if you've learned anything recently or, again, seen successful playbooks as to how to contribute. Yeah, yeah no, I, that's a really good way to frame it, actually. So the, the way I think about this is I think the mix between IQ and EQ probably shift depending on the individual and also the company stage. So, like, for example, if, if you're an earlier stage when you're like five to 10 people company, Everybody is just diving deep, like they're they're contributing on their individual, um, you know, expertise, building things from the ground up. So at that stage, everybody is like a one person army. So IQ probably takes a higher mix in that scenario, so that you can, you know, act very quickly and and come up with creative solutions to solve a problem and make trade off on a timely basis, you know, with very limited resources. Now, as as you kind of mature, uh, and then your team grows, and then the company grows. Then you become like, in addition to an individual contributor, you're also trying to inspire your team and you're trying to motivate them. You need to be able to relate to them and understand how you can, you know, like paint a picture of success and, and help them along the way. And that's where the, you know, slowly then the EQ becomes more and more important. And it's not going to be like a one-way direction for, for you to move just like from here to there. Uh, so, so being a leader, being able to kind of like recognize you know, having the, the both IQ and EQ, but the trick maybe one step further to that in my mind, and, and I think I'm still working on that for sure, is how do you find the time? Like, how do you recognize the moment when you dial like up or down, right? Like um, in today's environment with, uh, you know, the recent Silicon Valley bank, you know, chaos there. And also like, obviously our market conditions, super volatile. You want to be, when you communicate, you need to dial up the EQ because you want to, share, be transparent with employees about what has been going on. What are we going through? How are we preparing for different downside scenarios? Uh, make them understand and paint the, uh, provide a context for them so that they understand we are you know, working for their interest, that we, we are you know, leading uh, or partnering with them you know, in the front line, not just like behind the scenes. Uh, so I think EQ is very important in that scenario, especially during the uncertain times, which we seems to be always beyond there. Um, so, so I, yeah, so it's maybe a long way to explain it, but, but I feel like it's, it's going to be a constant dial and the, the better you are, you can pick up the moments when you, you know, when it's like, when to move it around. 
Yeah, I really appreciate that. And I always kind of ask audiences and listeners to you know hit that 30 second back button and re-listen to a piece of the, the episode. I think that's really important that I think you might be the first person to say that it's not a static you know, uh, allocation of when you need to over-communicate versus when you need to just strictly be heads down and lead by example in terms of just staying focused. And I, I really appreciate that there are different market environments. There are different things that could happen internally within the company where that sliding scale needs to be fluid and dynamic. So I think it's a really great answer. It sounds like we're kind of tiptoeing around uh, the, your personal definition of what makes a modern CFO. So I'd love to, love to get your, your take on that. Yeah, yeah. So I think of a modern CFO is it's a like first and foremost a strategic partner to the CEO and the exec team, and oftentimes maybe more increasingly it's a CFO that is a leader leading in the front line rather than maybe traditionally you might see CFO more like behind the scenes. Uh, they're equally effective, but you know it's just maybe a different style, and also with with the obligation of building relationships both internally and externally. So internally with like building your, your finance team, accounting team, and you're wearing multiple hats, but uh, you're also dealing with stakeholders like other employees or even ex-employees if they have like stock option questions, for example. But externally, you're dealing with also um, uh, you know, board members, potential investors, you know, you keep a relationship with the capital market uh, folks and vendors and, and all those people that in the ecosystem that you keep in touch with. So uh, being able to maintain the relationship, tell the story about company as well, that's super important. So it's no longer just someone that, you know, just provides the numbers or, you know, like um, be compliant on things, but someone that can actually be, be out there, you know, work alongside the rest of the leaders uh, with the CEO. That's a great definition. Yeah, and then maybe one one thing I would say is, uh, having said that, I I still want to stress that you know that the baseline for you to be a functional right, like high, highly functional CFO, will still need to be some of the key competencies like you know accounting, uh, you know making sure that uh, compliant the company is compliant, um, and the numbers got to be right. For example, uh, you got to manage cash. Those are like not something that you will forget, you know, just because right. you're trying to be in the front, you still need to make sure these core things are like well in place. I, I call it that the train is always going to be on time. And then you can work on the other like things to improve you as a more modern CFO. Got it. So you're the public face of the finance team, but you are the finance team. Finance now is table stakes in terms of you know, leadership and all of the other things you need to be a great modern CFO. Yeah, exactly. Got it. So I'd love to talk about, we've covered a lot of really impressive ways of describing frameworks and playbooks in our conversation already. I'd love to talk about some of the new technologies that are becoming available and how you manage focus and distraction uh, for yourself personally, for your team, and you know, the, the trade-offs of investing heavily in the latest technologies versus, uh, as you said, keeping the train on time. Yeah. So so there's a couple things, like maybe we can we can frame it of like the, you know, the companies always trying to look for new tools and softwares to to make our employees more productive. So that's always been a, a constant uh, evaluation and, and trade-off uh, based on the limited resources that we have. Uh, but one thing that's super exciting, maybe as the second part to that, is like all the new advanced development on AI, which, you know, I'm, I'm a finance guy, but I, I'm super excited about the, the AI development that I'm seeing with the pace and innovation. So I feel like this is going to be a huge potential for us, but obviously a lot of unknowns still. So, so yeah, I'm happy to dive into some of those. Uh, but, but maybe like uh, just this, to walking back real quick is for technology. So, so being a modern CFO, 
my mindset is that we we have to be very open-minded and, and fully embrace technology so that we can try to standardize and you know like automate most of the processes um, so that we can scale and you know i went through the whole learning process where you know back in the day like hardcore excel in banking but now over time i'm like hey you know excel plus uh google sheets for collaboration and now it's like, hey, uh, cloud-based financial planning tool so that, you know, everything is easier, accessible and share and we can like control access and we can build a lot more things um, in, in a more kind of a, a quality control way. So uh, it has evolved, like, especially for me as well, but that's just one example. Um, but that's happening across like different functions within the company. So a lot of times it's kind of looking at how many people does it impact and how does that translate to the company level impact for it? And is it going to be like a one-time transition thing or a long-term impact for us? Uh, so, uh, you know, adoption rate assumption type things is really important because I don't want to launch something and then people only use it for like three months and then nobody gets to use it. One thing that's maybe more timely these days with the volatile uh, market condition is that when I look at vendors or new tools, I also do a, another layer of uh, diligence just to see like, you know, are they well-funded, you know, or do they have a good track record? Uh, if we're going to commit long-term relationship with them, like, are they going to run out of cash uh, in the next eight months, which is a, a real concern uh, for a lot of the companies out there. Like, there are a lot of great companies that could, you know, get caught up in this environment today. And then, yeah, so, and then going into the AI topic, which, uh, you know, I'm actually very excited about, uh, and I start kind of playing with some of these, you know, use cases out there. One one thing I feel that it's like, um, you know, you, you can think of AI being a, a fractional assistant for someone on the engineering team or on the accounting team where uh, or a finance team where you can you have all the models and, and things like that, for example, but just ask AI to drill down on, you know, headcount on this month because things were fluctuating. You kind of know the general direction, but you know, just have the AI to pull that and, and kind of get you 90% of the way. And then you just kind of like uh, validate it and, and put in commentary and share with the team and do all that stuff. So that's a very, I think that's a use case that's probably available today or, or can be perfected really soon, given, you know, I'm looking at some of these developments, you know, it used to be, it takes like quarters or a year for like the next version to be available. Now it's like, oh, two weeks, um, you're gonna have another thing. So yeah, like at this pace, it's gonna be hard for me to even keep up with it, but I feel like some of these cool, uh, you know, applications is gonna come out and it will be a huge tool for us. Yeah, it's like compound interest, it's snowballing and the, the pace yeah. of innovation is incredible. So you know, it'd be interesting to me to hear, I mean, sales and marketing are gonna be pretty disrupted, but do you picture, I think right now we all are starting to realize that we can have personal assistance help us individually streamline some of the repeatable and kind of onerous uh, one-off things that we do every day. Do you think about this in terms of individual productivity or uh, kind of market shifting? We don't do marketing or customer engagement in the same way we did in the past. It's a hard thing to predict, but yeah, kind of curious as to what you see in the future. We look at it from from maybe like both angles like from a customer facing perspective. And again, this is probably still changing view. So like, you know, things are changing, but the, the way we kind of think about it is from a customer facing view, it's, it's probably going to be a very commoditized feature to have some kind of AI assistance or interface to product. So 
we would be probably experimenting. I think some of our competitors are already kind of looking at those as well, where with our product, you know, instead of building these key like workflows or, or, or um, you know, journeys, we can have AI create templates for you. Or mm. so we can get you like 50% of the way or maybe 80% of the way eventually or higher um, so that, you know, you know, uh, oh, you, you sign up with customer.io, you want to run this campaign. Um, these are the top three, you know, workflows that if you just give me the names of like the data inputs you want to do it, AI can kind of plug it in for you and then you can just modify it. I think that's a very feasible thing that, um, you know, company can do. So, so we will be looking at that to make sure that we enrich customer experience and make their, you know, life easier over time with, with AI. And then when it comes to like internal, the leverage of each employee has massively increased in such a way that like if you are like um, you know a, a subject matter expert of something you know the right questions to ask so like you, you're prompting the AI to do certain things for you AI become an extension of you that your productivity will increase you know drastically so I think of that as maybe from there the output of that would be we will be able to roll out like you know new features or upgrades of like our products and things like that in a much faster way Mm. Uh, pace similar to some of the stuff you're seeing out there where oh maybe like every month or every week you see some some new things because um the the pace has been just like constant in the background with ai so so that will that's probably something that i'm excited to see how that works out it's hard to predict right like i, I think the you might be able to get to 70 percent really quickly but then the each incremental percentage from there it takes much longer. So when you want to get from like 95 to 97, it's a much harder thing to do, uh, even for AI. So, uh, but yeah, I'm watching. <laughs> it's uh, it's super exciting to, to see. Yeah, I, you're making me think about how the venture and the private markets in general are probably going to shift pretty aggressively. And we went through this cycle in 21 of just scale at all costs. And if you're reporting to a board and they want to see where those investors' dollars are going, it's typically hiring to generate more output. And now we're seeing some of that, like you mentioned, some of that reversion. And there have been some pretty significant layoffs across the market. So it'll be interesting to see the next, you know, whoever is at Y Combinator a couple of weeks ago, how big their teams are going to be in a few years, or if they're not going to be the giant teams of the past. So it's super interesting. I think the ecosystem is going to change a lot. Yeah. And, and like the extension of that point too, right? On the VC level, like maybe you look at a series A company in the past and maybe it's a 10 people company, you're trying to uh, get to a certain scale. With AI, uh, fast forward, maybe many months from there, you probably only need two people. So you're, you're maybe the funding round, the, the dollar amount has changed, but you can probably get to the same reach uh, of the, the scale. Um, so what, what do you do if you have a VC that's, you know, you, you raise a fund that's based on a certain kind of like deal flow because you're writing a check size at this level. But now it's only like, oh, you instead of 10 people, you only need two people or like instead of 200 people, you only need like 50 people. You write a smaller check, you might have a higher return from there, but then how do you allocate the rest of the, the dry powder? Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's the all new questions that I don't have the answer for, but I, I can totally see that, you know, the wheels turning for, for everybody looking at, you know, these developments. This might be a, a tricky, one, because I'm not sure I've thought it through, but I'm thinking about the changing mediums of communication. I, I don't know how often you hear the cold email is just dead. It's just uh, flooded 
medium. I get, you know, hundreds of emails a day or, you know, I don't want a phone call coming into my personal cell or, yeah, I'm, I'm curious as to how the mediums of communication may change or the, uh, the routes that are, you know, if we could identify, like you mentioned, an AI puts together, you know, a certain format that is the most effective. Uh, I'm, I'm really curious to think through what the future of those mediums or cadences may be uh, that we're going to be able to unearth as this, all of this data becomes available where we know not only the right time to reach out, but how to do so at what medium and at, you know, in what, uh, with what messaging. So it's a, it's an interesting thing. I'm, I'm curious. I, I think I can see the automations taking place to generate insights. I'm very curious to see if there are going to be any new types of, uh, mediums that arise through some of this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's going to follow you you're definitely right because that has evolved over time when you know even when customer.io first started it was a lot of like just primarily email and then over time we added to uh you know push notifications we we then also did like sms and then we uh launched in app messages so we were trying to also make sure that we reach you know the audience through the different ways that they engage with their, um, you know, customers or their users. So, so that's continue to evolve. And then the, the mix of that will, will change over time. And, and I wouldn't be surprised. And like, you know, there will be another element that adds to the, the lineup. And then we'll try to make sure that, you know, we, we will be part of, you know, like a world-class engagement platform for, for that median as well. Very cool. Uh, staying on customer.io for just another moment. I want to bring us up a little bit higher to about 30,000 feet and think about what you're most excited about in the next 12 months, and then maybe expand even further out, like three to five years, uh, if you've got any idea as to what you're really excited. It doesn't have to be AI. It could be you know internal developments or even something personal. So I think we are in the near term, for, for this year, for example, there are um, a lot of you know, exciting product that we are, we've been kind of cooking in the background and we're excited to, uh, excited to, to roll it out this year. The, the data pipeline that we just, um, we talked about earlier is, is one of them. And so we're excited to continue to execute on our roadmap to make sure that we provide a rich experience for our customers. And then as we continue that journey, we know the power of having that, you know, like a source of truth as a customer record. And, and we see it because we, you know, we see our customers using our product and then, you know, integrating with the different data inputs and then they, they can drive actions from there. We see that having this as a core customer data uh, record will en enable us to add on to other experiences for them. So in addition to campaigns or marketing, we just talked about kind of the, the data integration. Uh, there will be many, many more things that we can explore. So that's what we're exp uh, very excited about. I think in the next three to five years, continue to, to, to add, you know, different add-on features or, or product experience to, to that and make it more of a platform experience for, for the company. So, so that's the longer term, you know, journey that, that we're on. And then internally, I'm kind of uh, still building out my team. So like I, I own... Uh, finance, accounting, data analytics, legal, IT, I'm probably forgetting a couple. So with that team, like, you know, I've been super excited about being able to, you know, providing a, a path for them to, to grow within the company and then also kind of adding uh, new talent to the team and, and seeing how with people now starting to work together and showing their potential and, and adding more productivity. Um, so mentoring the team and growing that team uh, has also been very, um, you know, rewarding for me as well. Yeah, it's very exciting. I want to go expand even further out. Uh, my favorite question on the podcast, and this can be 
about something we've already talked about or completely out of left field. It could be something you're reading or uh, personal opinion, but you know, what's one thing that you feel is underestimated in the world today? Yeah, uh, I think people neglect the value of the power of context. So what I mean by that is, and this is something I'm trying to improve as well. So I think when you provide the right context and you know connect the dots uh, for people, it really empowers them to to take ownership and really uh, enrich their experience in that you know uh, to getting to that success. So in a team environment, you know instead of me, a lot of companies or other people might just hey you think of it as a science. These are the ten steps in the workflow or the playbook. Like do it which has worked fine and, you know, that's totally good. But what I think about is providing the context for them so they understand what we're trying to achieve and then they can craft their steps to do it. Along the ways, we make mistakes, we learn better things, have some good surprises, but I think we all take more ownership that way. And then the highly talented people, I think really thrive when they have that freedom given the right context for, for any like goals or projects. And then sometimes when I look at some people are talented, but then they, maybe they fail in a certain task. And, and I kind of take ownership on that. And maybe I did not provide the right context for them to really empower them to get to the right path. So that's something that, it, you know, like maybe people are more focused on in the past about driving the right behavior down to a science step-by-step. Step. I'm kind of of the view that while that is important, let's make sure we, you know, provide a context, tell the story, connect the dots for them to make sure that they are also you know, a principal, you know, stakeholder rather than just getting the step done. I think that's a really interesting point. I was just reading an article about some of the cultural differences between founders who call their teams a family versus a professional sports team. And you think of a professional sports team, if it's not performing, people are traded, owners may not invest as much in the next year. They're just harsh realities. In the context of a family, that is going to cause strife. It's just a, it's a mix of expectations as well. So I really think it's a, it's an interesting concept. And I also think it's really important in terms of basic communications. You could expand that out into almost any conversation that you have in a kind of a very politically loaded environment, no matter what, if you can provide good context as to where you're coming from and the hope to explain an outcome in the way that you'd like. I think it's a really powerful tool. Uh, it also, like you said, it provides accountability to both parties in uh, not just the outcomes, but in the communication levels, because you have to both articulate that you understand the same goal. Yeah. And it's a very interesting, like maybe a transition too, because I think a lot of the companies when they are going from like a, a smaller company, but they went through a very successful, massive growth journey. And then they realize that, oh, they're kind of like in between a family environment to a you know professional sports team. And there's probably not like a right or wrong either way. And a lot of people are probably trying to figure out in between, but the transition of it, and, and maybe also like depending on the times of the market or like the, the, the life stage of the company, then you're trying to communicate the behavior change where, yeah, on certain things, like for us to scale, you know, it needs to be done a differently, a different way versus like back in the day, everything it's, you know, honor system, uh, you know, family type feel. It, it's going to be, it's going to go through some natural progression. Um, and it probably doesn't need to be extreme, like the uh, just purely professional sports feel to it. And I think I value 
customer.io where even though we've gone, so we're now about 230 people. Uh, when I joined, I think it was like 100, so like about 18 months ago or something. Um, so we've gone through massive uh, growth and you know we were able to keep the, all the good DNAs um, I, I could be biased, but you know I think we, we kept all the good DNAs, you know, as as a you know fast company, but you know still keeping that um, you know close, fully remote you know elements to it, while adding new employees, like new perspective, new experience into it, but still kind of uh, jiving as a united you know force. So so that's been you know very interesting to see, and we're definitely going through some of those transitions in terms of uh, maybe you know policies and, and things like that for us to really tweak it. But we want to make sure that we're not sacrificing some of the efficiencies or, or some of the uh, prior experience that people take pride in with the company. We don't want to water it down with just a bunch of uh, processes and like workflows. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's, it's a challenge for, you know, to measure growth and cultural consistency. So because uh, priorities change, stakeholders sometimes change, ownership sometimes changes, that all can have major impacts on uh, culture. And I think it's so important because you, know, you may have a great idea as to what to do, but culture defines how you go about doing it. So I think it's a, it's a really important concept. One of the last things I want to cover today is some of your advice for aspiring CFOs. Uh, you had a non-linear path, but I think you know, you've also had a number of moves that you said you picked up and moved across the country a, a few times and you've lived uh, in a few different places. How did you have some of the, um, where did the courage come from to make some of those transitions? And if people are thinking about a move for the uh, CFO role for the first time, uh, what would you recommend they start thinking about? Yeah. And, and I always love kind of going through or like chatting with people about, you know, their, their career journey and like, when they make certain choices, right? I think for 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 folks that are you know trying to make the move, there's a couple of recent uh, learnings, right? I, the, the one that's fresh in my mind actually, it's the uh, uh, Silicon Valley Bank situation. So this is a very maybe a common thing, but like uh, just make sure you don't put all your eggs in one basket. We were exclusively banking with uh, SVB, uh, and and they're a bunch of great guys. We still keep our relationship with them, but when that situation came up we were just, we were stuck. We couldn't get our things out. So I think just the, the lesson of that is, you know, try to make sure that you have um, always diversified your risk um, and then don't put all your um, eggs in one basket. And then also it, this might be a hard thing for, um, you know, finance people because we, because we like numbers and we like knowing things exactly, but a CFO, especially when you're operating in a fast growing pace, you have to be comfortable with high degree of uncertainty. In a certain degree, maybe even embrace that. So, so that's probably a very counterintuitive thing where, mm-hmm. um, where you go through finance accounting training. But like when you look at the numbers, like there's just a lot of variability to it. So I think of that as it's a, it's, it's a skill to have to be comfortable with uncertainty and, and to embrace that potentially the, the, the fear or the, the anxiety with that uh, uncertainty because we're, we're trying to achieve like some big goals. We're trying to, you know, make a lot of big impact for customers. It's supposed to be pretty nerve wracking. Like if you're trying to climb Mount Everest, it's supposed to be pretty, pretty tough. Like you shouldn't be like, you know, comfortable around. So I, I think having that, just accept the fact and, and just kind of take the challenge and make sure that you have upside downside case to kind of like frame your, the, the ranges as you go through the, navigate through the risk. 
then you can kind of really thrive on it. But maybe that's one thing, like, I think conceptually, it's uh, a little bit contrary to, to people's, uh, you know, by, by trade. Uh, it's a really, really unique perspective, because if you have an idea that you're in a high risk environment, you can account for that level of variability. And then you can continue to kind of recapture uh, some of that control that I know most finance people really appreciate. I want to give you the opportunity, maybe you'll be back here in Philly talking to Penn students soon, but I want to give uh, you the opportunity to let people know how to learn more about customer.io. Uh, maybe if your career page, we can link in the show notes, if you're actively continuing to expand the team and your team specifically, uh, would love to know and direct people where to go if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so we are we're definitely hiring. So I think the best place to go is customer.io. That's the address and takes us to the company page. Yeah, so you can do customer.io and then slash careers. Uh, and then you can find all the open spots there. And then, um, you know, follow us on, on, on Twitter, on Instagram, uh, LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, and I, I would love to keep in touch with you. And uh, I, I've been saying that I'm going to go back and, and visit Philly for a long time. So now you're adding another reason for me to go back. My wife and I, we, we met in freshman year college at Penn. So we were kind of joking that maybe on one of these like anniversary years, uh, you know, this is like many, many years now uh, that we'll go back to Philly and celebrate. Well, can't wait for that day. There'll be uh, cheesesteaks in the office for you waiting. Uh, you and I can't wait for that day to come. Z, thank you so much for joining the Modern CFO Podcast. And I hope to stay in touch and I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Andrew.